So our passage for today comes from the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 3. And this is, uh, this, this is, is a continuing um, part of a series that I've been doing through the book of Galatians. Whenever I preach, probably every two months or so, or three months. And we have kind of come to the point in the book of Galatians where Paul has, has kind of done his introductory statements. He's laid out the history of how he got the gospel, and now he's getting into the, the meat of his argument. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 1, hear the word of the Lord this morning. Oh, foolish Galatians, how's that for a start? (laughs) Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies miracles, um, who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I want to start this morning by asking all the parents in a room a question. So here's the question. Do you love your children? It's not a trick question. Do you love your children? Yes, yes. Now, let me ask you another question. Do you always like your children? Do you ever get frustrated with them? Or maybe if you're a child here, because we, we all have been children once, we all have parents, do your parents ever get frustrated with you? Now, one of my favorite comics books is, is the comic book Calvin and Hobbes. Um, I, I loved it as a child, and I think I appreciate it even more as an adult um, as I get older. And I think one of my favorites, Dave's going to be putting it up here now um, briefly on the screen, is this one. Now let me ask you parents again, now that we've dredged up memories that you maybe would rather forget, do you still love your children? But you know, as funny as this is, or maybe not so funny in the moment, sometimes our kids make decisions which have more serious consequences than destroying a a table, or um, as one story, story I heard a little while back, throwing dinkies at a new TV. Which of us do you think is going to stand still as our child runs out into the middle of ro- the road? Which one of us thinks, which one of us do you think would just wait and just watch and see what happens? I'm sure they'll figure it out. Josiah, my youngest, who's about one and a half now, recently went through a phase where he had this fascination with plugs, with outlets. He liked to unplug things and then try and plug them back in. And he also liked to try and stick his fingers into the sockets. Needless to say, the tone that I used to dissuade him from this practice was not gentle. 
You see, he needed to understand that this was serious, that it's dangerous. But how about those of you who have kids who are maybe a bit older? Or for those of you who are grown up? What happens when you watch your children make mistakes that have more lasting impacts on their lives than nails in a table? When you're watching your kids who you love make mistakes that are going to have devastating consequences. I mean, as a parent, that makes you want to grab them and shake sense into them. And I want you guys to keep this image in your mind of a father or a mother trying to turn their child away from deadly peril as we look at our passage today. Because we're going to see Paul, or we did see, I guess, because we just read it, have some rather difficult words, some harsh words for the Galatians. They were not easy words. But what he's got to say is not because he's this grumpy old man. This is the harshness of a father who's trying to wake his children up to the reality of the trouble that they're in. You see, the letter of Galatians is written to the Galatians, to a group of people in probably southern Turkey, what is now southern Turkey, who've been swayed by an alternative gospel. And Paul is writing to call them back, to call them back to the truth. There is no other gospel. There's no other way to be saved. No other good news. Other than the one that they were originally taught. And Paul, first by laying out the history of how he got the gospel and how it was confirmed, he did that in chapters 1 and 2. And now, as he moves towards a more theological argument... Paul is trying to call them back to the good news. But he starts it, he starts it with a rebuke. Oh, foolish Galatians. Paul will say later in chapter 4, he will say, My little children, whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now, And change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You see, Paul loves the Galatians. He loves them. And that love is compelling him to act. And so we start our passage today with a rebuke, which points to the seriousness of this situation. Oh, foolish Galatians, mindless, unreasoning, naive children, Paul is confused by the Galatians and their lack of spiritual discernment. They should know the truth. After all, he taught it to them himself. Paul was the one who brought the gospel to the Galatian church. He founded the Galatian churches. Who? Who has bewitched you? Literally, this means who has cast a spell over you? They must have because there's no other possible reason for you to abandon Christ. Now, I don't think Paul is suggesting here that someone literally cast some sort of evil spell. Someone with a wand was like, kazam, and, and this evil curse went over the Galatians. This is more likely along the lines of how you and I would use the phrase in a modern context um, for someone who's, who's been deceived because you're unable to see the truth. 
See, Christ was clearly proclaimed to them. They understood the power. They understood the gospel. But if they understood it, then why on earth would they turn away from something that's so amazing, so lovely? They, were, they saw the finished work of Christ on the cross. And they turned away to a gospel of lies, a gospel of works, of things that we do. And this echoes the beginning of the letter. If you guys remember back to the very begin, near the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a, a different gospel. However, I think here, there's also clearly a spiritual component to this whole situation. We're not just talking about some sort of intellectual disagreement here. Or even a disagreement that has maybe temporal or kind of real-world consequences. I think on the some level here, when Paul says that they've been bewitched, he's including the very spiritual reality of the situation. We're talking about a spiritual battle here for the salvation of souls. The, implica- the consequences of this struggle are life and death. In a later letter to the Ephesian church, after expanding on all the great truths of the gospel and their implications for our lives, Paul would say, in Galatians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, for those of you who are familiar with that passage, Paul goes on to talk about specifically what it means to put on the armor of God. And does anyone remember what the first part that he tells them to put on is? Anyone, can anyone remember? Not the breastplate. It's the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Yes, we're talking about true and false, right and wrong, and this is, but this is so much more. This is more than just getting it right. There is a spiritual conflict being waged around us. And we cannot forget that. Just as a child does not understand the dangers of running out into the middle of a road, though they may understand that, you know, that they shouldn't do that. They may you know, recognize that their parents said, don't run out into the road. They may understand on some level that it's dangerous. But do you think they really understand what awaits them if they go wandering out into the parkway? And in the same way, the Galatians... And may I also suggest sometimes we often don't understand the very real danger we can find ourselves in. And so Paul, in this passage, asks a whole bunch of rhetorical questions. Questions to which the answer is obvious. These questions are designed to cause the Galatians to stop and consider, to call them back to the truth of the gospel. They are a call to stop relying on 
our own strength. To stop relying on the things that we've done and to rely on faith in the power of God. And these questions that Paul asks, I think, also point there's an underlying thing going on here that there is an alternative gospel that Paul is trying to push back against. There were some underlying lies that we have a tendency to believe. And they all come from this same basic premise. If I'm good enough, if I work hard enough, if I follow the right process, God will approve of me. That's the basic lie of the gospel of works. And how many of us, you know, live under the tyranny of trying to measure up, keep up pretenses. How many of us intellectually understand that the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives in us, and yet we never really feel we can avail of that power like we're on our own? And so this morning, we're going to walk together through this passage. We're going to walk together and consider these lies of the gospel of work. So here's the first lie. I am saved by doing. I'm saved by doing. Take a look at verse 2. Paul asks the question, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul here is not just appealing to their experience, he's appealing to the basis on which they became a Christian, what it means for them to be a Christian, their understanding of what being a follower of Christ involves. The work of the Spirit of God, you know, it came to live inside of you? How did that happen? Did you do something? Did you carefully observe Jewish law, following all the do's and don'ts and Did you receive the Spirit of God when you were circumcised? When you joined the club? When you completed a purification ritual? No. We welcomed four new members into the church this past week. And for those of you who were members, you would have seen we sent out their testimonies. And so I want to ask you a question regarding those testimonies. This is a test to see if you actually read them. Did any of them say that they were saved and they received the Spirit of God in their hearts when they got their lives together? After they figured out the right way to live and started following through on it? No. I mean, is that your testimony? Were you transformed by following a set of rules? Did you complete a 12-step program and then God poured his spirit out on you? No, that's not how it happened, is it? Paul would later write to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, and he says, and you were dead, dead. That's pretty irreversible. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. I mean, has there been ever been a better but? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works that no one may boast. Wow. I mean, if you ever want to be, feel a little better, just as a side, you know, go read the first few chapters of Ephesians. You will feel instantly better about everything. It is hard to be depressed after reading Ephesians 1 and 2. We were not saved because we did something right. The Galatians were not saved because they did something right. They were saved because God did something. And by faith in the fact that when Jesus said on the cross, that is finished, he meant it. Which brings us to the second lie that we have a tendency to believe, which is that I'm perfected by doing. So maybe, maybe I wasn't saved by doing, maybe I'm saved by faith, but, but I'm perfected by doing. Look at verses three to four. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? You see, what these false teachers were saying to the Galatians was not a complete denial of the gospel, a complete denial of our need for Christ. They were saying, you just need to add a few things on top of Christ. Christ is good, but we need to add a little bit on top, sprinkle a little bit of seasoning onto Christ. In particular, they wanted to add the Jewish ritual, religious ritual of circumcision. And I think this lie is particularly compelling because there is a lot of truth in it. The issue in Galatia was around this Jewish religious law, but we often struggle with very similar issues. You know, we're also often tempted to think that now that God has saved me, if God has saved me and I've received the good news and it happened to me back then, now I need to kind of go forward and follow the rules. So I was saved over there. That was something that happened. But now I need to follow the rules. I mean, have you ever found yourself measuring your spiritual progress by a a list of do's and don'ts? by how much you tithe, by church attendance, by how many social justice causes you have pursued. And please don't misunderstand me here because the call to pursue Christ is a call to pursue holiness and is a call to pursue righteousness. And that is a huge part of the Christian walk. And Paul is actually going to address this this issue in great detail later in the letter. 
But our call to holiness is a call to pursue Christ, not a call to pull ourselves along, not a call by our own effort to meet some sort of standard. It's a call to rely on the Spirit of God, not a call for self-improvement. Notice how Paul uses the contrast of the Spirit versus the flesh. In much the same way he contrasted faith and works in verse 2. And this is not an accident, because Paul is trying to link the work that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, God is trying to link that to faith, the work of faith. We are saved by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that's true, then why would we say, well, now I've got all that figured out, I can move on and just follow a bunch of rules. Surely God will be more pleased with me if I follow some rules. How can you start by this power of the Spirit of God and then one-up that with a list? If the Spirit of God raised us from the dead as we saw, we were dead. Like, dead is, is not good. We can't fix dead. And yet God raised us from the dead. How can that work be perfected by performing religious tasks? You know how quickly I think we forget the miraculous way that God has worked in and through our lives. The Spirit of God has already performed this miracle of raising us from the dead. So shouldn't we expect our continuing spiritual walk to be just as miraculous? God's power was enough to save you. Don't you think his power is enough to change you? So often, I think, we don't think that God is capable or, may, or interested in dealing with our anger, our bitterness, our struggles with lust, our selfishness, our despair, that we're somehow responsible to figure this out on our own. No, no. We should expect the miraculous power of God in our lives. And the theologian Richard Longnecker, I think, says this really well when he says, the Christian life starts, is maintained, and comes to culmination only through dependence on the activity of God's Spirit. We're not perfected by doing. We have been saved and will be made perfect by the power of the Spirit of God. And this brings us, which I think is to probably the most subtle of the lies of the gospel of works. And that is, I receive God's blessing by doing. Take a look at verses 5 to 6. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, the Galatian church had experienced the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in a very visible way. 
And Paul wants them to consider what it means that the Spirit of God was working among them, that there was miracles among them. I mean, church, he says, how did the Spirit of God come to live inside you? How did the miraculous transformation of your heart happen? The miraculous signs that you've seen, how did they come about? Did they come because you followed the rules? And there are many false teachers out there who will tell you that if you tithe a certain amount or if you live a certain way, sow financial seeds in their bank accounts, that God's Spirit is obligated to supernaturally give you health, wealth, and happiness. But what about the more subtle ways that this plays out? How often do we treat our request to God like a transaction? As if God is more likely to answer our prayers if we haven't screwed up today. When God performed a miracle in the heart of a teenage boy in Murray, Pakistan, and suddenly made him want to read the Bible and know who Jesus was, that didn't happen because that boy started doing something right. Or that his parents' prayers were finally heard because they'd reached some sort of moral threshold. When God miraculously sent mysterious men dressed in white to help staff at Murray Christian School escape over the fence and get away from terrorists, when he blinded the eyes of those same terrorists to the open doors leading to classrooms full of children, did that happen because someone followed the rules? You see, when God's Spirit miraculously heals... Does that happen because the person being healed was more obedient than the person who died? Does God work miracles by his power because you have followed some sort of ritual? Does the Spirit pour out his power on you because you were better at following the rules than your neighbor? Because you followed a formula. Romans chapter 6 says that the very power that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of us. But I'm going to tell you, I have never seen the power of God to change lives, to heal, to rescue, to transform. I have never seen that power come because someone followed the rules. See, that power, the power of the Holy Spirit is alive and work at every believer. If you are a believer today, that power is inside of you. But you can't manipulate the Spirit with good behavior, no more than you could possibly earn a gift that's already been given. And lest we think this is something new, that somehow things were different in the Old Testament, Paul goes right back to the beginning of the choosing of the people of God. He goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of Israel. He says, Abraham... Abraham was declared righteous by faith. Abraham's and his descendants received God's blessing of faith long before the law, before rules were given. History is littered with examples of those who have gone before us by faith in the power of the Spirit of God. And so this morning... We want to be, as the book of James says, 
doers of the word, right? Not hearers only, and so deceiving ourselves. How do we live this out? Well, because I like the number three, just as we saw three lies, I want to highlight three truths that we need to live out in our lives. And so the first thing here is that we need to trust in the free gift of God. If you're not a Christian here today, if you've not yet put your hope in Christ, in Jesus, then then hear me now. The free gift of God is available to everyone. And anyone who comes and puts their hope in what Jesus did on our behalf. See, we've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. Not one of us can say, you know, I'm good. I've got it figured out. Not one of us can say that that we can earn God's favor, that we can gain it. But God in his mercy sent Jesus to die in our place. So right here, right now, don't have to wait. We can have reconciliation with God. All of our failures, all of our failings can be washed away by the sacrifice of Jesus. And all we need to do is believe and put our hope in what he has done. That's all. There's no 12-step program, no test. You can be free from the bondage of sin today. But for those of us who have put our hope in Christ, hold on to this truth. Hold on to this wonderful truth. Never doubt that the sacrifice of Christ is enough to cover all of your sin. Even the ones that you're so ashamed of, you've never told anyone. God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you before you had ever done anything, either good or bad. And if he saved you, he sent his spirit to live inside of you, and you're no longer a slave to sin, who the son has set free. Oh, they are free indeed. So when you're tempted to despair because of your failures, you know, and I'm tempted all the time, guys. Like, despair is so easy. Despair comes so naturally, doesn't it? Say, I am not saved by what I do, but by the free gift of God. And when you're tempted to think, you know, I'm doing pretty good, which paradoxically I can also be very tempted to do. You know, God must approve of me because I'm doing well. Say, no, I am not saved by what I do, but by the free gift of God. Secondly, look around you and recognize the spiritual battle that we're in. Our struggle here, family, because like, you guys are my family. We are family. And our struggle 
is not about flesh and blood. It's not about the things of this world. It's not about being right. This is a life and death endeavor we're on. And when we quote unquote don't get it, it's not because we're just misunderstanding. It's because we don't want to understand. We have this underlying desire to disbelieve the things of God. And there are forces, not human ones, who are doing everything in their power to whisper lies into every one of our ears. Later in the book of, of First Peter, um, for Peter writing to the churches, which actually coincidentally include the very Galatians that Paul is writing to here, writes and says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. There are forces at work, make no mistake, trying to actively deceive us, to rob us of the joy of the gospel. Guys, when we gather as the church, when we gather here this morning, this is not a social club. It's not some time to make us feel good about ourselves because we figured it out. We're engaged in a war. Do you understand that? This is a war, and we're preparing, we're rearming ourselves to go out and fight. We have to go be prepared to go fight spiritual battles every day. So don't be surprised when you walk out of here and you run into opposition. When you go out and immediately you and your wife have a fight. <laughs> or your kids start misbehaving. Or you go home and you immediately fall prey to that sin that you have been fighting for so long and you cannot seem to beat. This is a cosmic conflict that we are engaged in over the souls of people. And there are forces that are opposing us. Paul equates the contrast of faith and works with this contrast of spirit and flesh. And that means if we put our hope in God, though, he has given us his spirit to live inside of us. So we're not alone in this struggle. It's not just that there's opposition. We have help. God lives inside of us. The same power that spoke the universe into existence let there be light, and there was light. That power is inside of you. Yes, we have an adversary. Yes, there's a lion out there that wants to devour us, but we've also been blessed, as Ephesians says in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But we need to recognize that we are in a very real spiritual war. And we need to see everything through the lens of that. And then finally, we need to trust that what God starts, he will finish. Later in chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul will summarize what the Christian life should look like, as opposed to the, the way the Galatians were acting, by saying, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Through the power of the Spirit, we wait for our ultimate hope that we will be made perfect with Christ. And what's the mechanism through which this happens? It's faith. Now, in the book of Hebrews, the author defines faith this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of what we hope for, that we believe when God says he chose us before the beginning of the world, that he meant it. That we believe that God has indeed sent his spirit, that the power of God to live inside of us. That, when we, that we believe when he says nothing can separate us from the love of God, he means nothing. And if you were to look back at the list of people who then the book of Hebrews talks about, there's this big long list of people who live by faith. All through the rest of chapter 11. It's a great read. You can go read it if you want afterwards. But you would see that these people did not always have it easy. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. But our hope, our hope, Calvary, is not in the things of this world, is it? Our hope is, as Galatians says, righteousness, perfection. See, God did not do a miracle when he changed your heart, a miracle in your life and change your heart and give you the spirit just to walk away and leave you on your own. Paul would later say in the letter to the Romans that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. See, the power of God lives in us. It's driving us towards the goal to reach the prize for which we've been called heavenward. That miraculous power of the Spirit working through us doesn't mean that we will always be healthy, though God desires our good. It doesn't mean that we're going to be rich, though God has promised us riches beyond what we can imagine in eternity. It doesn't mean we're always going to be happy, though the joy of the Lord is our strength. But it does mean that the power is, of God is working through every and any circumstance to conform his people more and more to his likeness. And through the Spirit, by faith, we can eagerly await the hope of perfection when God calls us to heaven to be with him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in awe of the amazing good news that you saved us while we were still sinners, that you have poured your spirit out on us, that you have given us power in your name Lord God, I pray now that we would be a people 
who pursue you with all of our hearts. That you would conform us and drive us and mold us and shape us more and more into your likeness every day. I pray that we wouldn't despair, but that we would hold on to the hope that you have called us heavenward and that you are going to finish what you started. I pray all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.